uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Erin, and Sarah couldn't be here today, so it's just going to be this one. I want to thank you guys for joining us, especially after last week was sort of a weird episode. Um, it was totally different than anything I've ever done, anything I've ever read, um, but I found it really interesting, especially learning about the dating rituals in the 1800s and all that kind of stuff. Um, I found that very fascinating. So hopefully you did too. And if you didn't, but you stuck around anyway, thank you so much. It's so nice. This week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Last week, we did the fairy tale. So this week, I thought we would talk about a horror movie. Do Mix it up a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about a horror movie and we're going to talk about the folklore inspiration behind it. So hopefully this will be inter interesting to you. Um, this week we are covering the 2002 movie, The Ring, and the Japanese legend behind it. So do you guys remember The Ring? It came out in 2002. It was really big. It was really like such a different type of horror movie. When it came out, I was too young really for it to be aware of it, but it really came, became like sort of a cult classic when it came out on videotape because it's all about a cursed videotape and then you're watching it and you're sort of going through the experience of <laughs> doing what the characters are doing. It's very frightening. Anyway, so it really was like a, if you were a preteen and you had a lot of sleepovers, you definitely saw this movie. I wasn't really a scary movie person and I had, I still, I have a very low tolerance for scary stuff and it scared the crap out of me. I don't think for weeks I did not um, watch television because in it, if you haven't seen The Ring, there's a part where the ghost lady comes out of the television and it just so terrified me. Even now I'm a little bit like, ooh, but you know, it's been a long time. Anyway. I knew I knew that she wouldn't come out of the television, but I wasn't I wasn't quite willing to risk it. So I just thought, oh, no TV for me. <laughs> so for those of you who haven't seen it in a while, or those of you who have never seen it, let's just get into the plot a little. So Naomi Watts plays a reporter who investigates the death of her niece. She keeps hearing about a cursed videotape, so of course she gets a copy and she watches it. Seconds after watching it, after finishing the tape. The phone rings and a raspy voice tells her she has seven days to live. Um, and then later her kid watches the tape too. And that just li lights a fire under her to figure out where the tape came from and how to stop it. Because otherwise her kid's going to die. Uh, eventually she learns a little girl named Samara is behind the whole thing. She was adopted by parents who eventually murdered her because they were sure she was the devil. Um... Well, the devil or evil, you know. Um, they buried her in a well, so Naomi frees the ghost from the well, thinking that this will lift the curse. It does not. Um, the little girl, just she murders her friend instead. And it turns out the ghost has spared them because they made a copy of the film and someone else watched it. And then the movie sort of just ends. <laughs> So you, you'll die if you see the tape, but you'll live if you make a copy of it and make someone else die instead, which is terrible. Uh, it, it doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense, but it's really quite compelling to watch. Everything is sort of told in drips and drabs. So the whole time you're just desperately trying to figure out what's going on. And I don't think I figured it out until I'd watched it two or three times. And even as an adult, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. 
because you know you just have sort of flashes of as a kid you're like oh yeah oh, okay anyway so this movie is actually a remake of a japanese horror film um they in turn got the plot from a novel which is now a series of five books six if you count the short story collection um they all have the same name um the ring so I thought this was a reference to the circle of light around the well cover that buried Samara. Um, the filmmakers thought it was a reference to the telephone ring when you get the creepy call, like the ring on the, you know. But according to the author, this uh, title, The Ring, it was actually a reference to the cyclical nature of the plot. So it's all a ring and it's just going to keep going and forever and ever. Now, this movie was successful in America, absolutely, but it was 10 times more popular in Japan. There's at least a dozen sequels, including a film where the main character fights another monster lady, um, sort of like our Freddy versus Jason, <laughs> which is hilarious. What's fascinating to me is how different Japanese horror is. In American horror, the plot is similar to a Western. The monster is the outsider, and then you have the main character that must defeat the outsider. In Japanese horror, however, films are much more experimental. Stories aren't really told chronologically. Instead, you see flashbacks to memories. So there's much more of a psychological terror versus a scary monster on the loose. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. They're just different. And of course, there's tropes that exist in each genre. Um, so now we need to talk about the Japanese version. Otherwise, the ghosts that inspired the film will make very little sense. So this is a quick summation. Um, the beginning is very similar. A journalist is out to find the reason for her niece's mysterious death. She and her husband find a hidden message in the tape, which leads them to a small island. Once there, they learn the story of Shizuko, a woman famed for her psychic powers. Turns out a creepy doctor arranged a viewing of Shizuko's powers to all the press. She couldn't perform under the stress and she was called a fraud. She eventually committed suicide. Um, the daughter, Sadako, she also had psychic abilities and used those to kill her mother's critics. So she is one terrifying little girl. Now, in the book, things are a little bit different. After visiting her father, Sadako is kidnapped by another doctor. He rapes her and unknowingly infects her with smallpox. He then throws Sadako into a well. She died, and the final images running through her mind were captured on a videotape. The immense rage that she felt at her mother's untimely death and, of course, her being attacked, that um, seared those images into the videotape. Um, her smallpox infection also embedded itself into the video, and that is why the video acts like a virus that just keeps replicating itself. And then the rest of the movie, the rest of the plot is pretty much the same. The journalist is spared by making a copy of the tape and ensuring it continues on. Uh, personally, I think this version makes the most sense. Um, first, there is a reason why Sadako slash Samara is so angry. In the American version, she's just evil incarnate and she does things because she's evil and that's the end of the story. But I think the fact that she's hell-bent on revenge makes her scarier because this could happen to anyone who has been wronged. Very few people are just evil for evil's sake. Second, I really like the smallpox, smallpox part. Embedding smallpox into a tape is a new twist that surprised me. 
And I just thought that was really interesting that they turn smallpox, the infection thing, into a psychic phenomenon. I thought that was really just something unique and I'd never heard of before. So so now that you know all about the ring, let's talk about the inspiration for the story. First, we will talk about the real-life inspiration for the characters and then the folklore that inspired it. The real-life inspiration for the mother character dates back about 100 years. At the time, spiritualism was huge and scientists wanted to study it. That was the aim of a man named Fukurai, who was an assistant professor at the University of Tokyo. He was bound and determined to prove that psychics and photography were real. Um, photography, for those of you who are not into psychic stuff, um, that's the ability to project images from your mind onto a medium like paper or film. He called it Nesha, which means sense inception. And as much as I could, I tried to make sense out of that. And I really can't. Because inception means like the beginning. So this is the sense that you have of the beginning? I'm, I really don't understand. Anyway. To prove that this was a legitimate thing, that photography was real, Fukurai sought women who worked as clairvoyants. So one such woman was named Shizuko Mifune. And if I'm getting these Japanese names really wrong, you can tell me about it. Like, I can take it. Just don't be mean about it because I will cry. Um, her backstory is interesting. She married young and divorced soon after. The reason for the divorce, um, this is interesting, her in-laws declared that she was a thief. So her husband had misplaced some money and she suggested looking in a drawer of a Buddhist altar that her in-laws used. Lo and behold, the money was there and her in-laws accused her of hiding the money herself, but Shizuko said she was innocent. Um, and obviously her husband took her his parents' side, which kind of sucks. Although... <laughs> You know, she that was supposed to be evidence of the fact that she was clairvoyant. But to me, I think she probably just saw them do that. But um, After the divorce, Shizuko's brother helped her develop her psychic abilities through meditation. Her whole family worked as folk healers and some of them worked as clairvoyant. So this was something that they were pretty much used to. Um, and apparently Shizuko was super good at being a psychic. Her big skill was locating illness in the body which I guess you would then call a doctor about and say, this lady thinks I have illness in my foot. I'm not sure. But she was apparently very good at that. I don't think that because she was good at that, that means she was psychic. I think that she was just um, intuitive and could sort of listen to people and figure out where um, the illness might be coming from. That's just my opinion. But anyway. Um, she also located lucrative mines for wealthy business businessmen, which seems a bit dodgy. Like, that's something that Yuri Geller does, and he's the biggest swindler of them all. So I'm not really into it. But I have to say, finding mines for wealthy businessmen is, that's, I mean, it's not as bad as charging desperate people so they can get a message from their deceased loved one. You know, if you've got to do something, do that. Like, <laughs> I just don't want you picking on the desperate. Um, anyway, Fukurai, he performed a bunch of experiments with Shizuko, and like many after him, he was fooled by her gifts. There have been many experiments, including a CIA-funded one where researchers have been fooled. Time after time, researchers don't follow strict guidelines that would prevent cheating, and time after time, they get fooled. 
Um, for more information on this, which is really interesting, you can watch The Honest Liar. And that's a documentary about a magician named James Randi, who is totally committed to um, exposing these con men who say that they are really psychics. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but he worked until his 90s. So, And he's a really smart guy and did some really cool stuff. So. Um, Fukurai, he bought in a hundred percent to Shizuko's gifts and he made her the face of his experiments. He did a public demonstration to convince every skeptic. Um, he invited a bunch of the press and then he did this big elaborate thing, this big elaborate experiment. So the professor prepared several messages. He put them inside sealed pipes and he asked Shizuko to guess at what the letters were. She got them all correct, and the skeptical the skeptical press demanded that she do it again. And again, she got them all correct. Well, this really would have been a triumph for the ages, except word got out that the professor had written all the notes, and he told Shizuko what they were beforehand. Um, the press then labeled her a fraud. This is not great. This story actually changes a lot when the professor tells it. So he put out a book. We'll talk a little bit more about it, but he put out a book and he gave his own account. And it, according to him, once Shizuko got some notoriety, a bunch of other women claimed to be clairvoyants. A few were found to be frauds and a newspaper singled Shizuko out, casting doubt on her abilities. She claimed that she had no more use in this world and she later died from an ingestion of poison. I will say that I find the professor to be an unreliable narrator so take all of that with a grain of salt. Um, she did really die of suicide, however, which of course is a great tragedy. Everyone deserves to live a happy and fulfilled life. And I blame the professor for most of this. I'm sure he put enormous pressure on her, probably telling her that the fate of the movement was in her hands, blah, blah, blah. Terrible. Uh, but Fukurai did not give up after her death. He decided to keep going. He worked with other clairvoyants, and two of them were really the standouts. One of them was named Nayuko. She um, supposedly had the ability to burn her thoughts onto photo plates. And, of course, that is the exact same ability that the psychic had in the Japanese film. Her daughter, Sadako, is the one who can burn her thoughts onto videotape and then later becomes a horrifying revenge monster. So Fukurai decided to do another demonstration, but this time with Ayuko. Basically, the same thing happened again. Reporters pointed out the fakes, and then there was a torrent of bad press. And again, the supposed psychic didn't handle it well. While she didn't die by suicide, her health did decline rapidly, and then she died soon after. So, very sad. So to lift our spirits back up, let's talk a little bit about photography. So it's technically different than spiritualism, but to me, it's all the same. It's all like crackpot, doesn't make any sense, can't be explained by science. It's all nonsense. Basically, you're conducting a seance, you're staring into a crystal ball. That sounds the same as burning your thoughts into a photo plate. I mean, I don't know. So this, of course, wasn't possible until there was photography, which emerged in the mid-1800s. Thanks to this emerging medium and then the new craze of spiritualism, you had all the conditions for a scam. It, the conditions were also right in that this happened right after the Civil War. 
Many people were desperate to know if their deceased loved one was all right. Photographers began to notice that you could manipulate the exposure to produce an image that looked like a ghost. One photographer, Muller, he used a photo of his cousin and he manipulated the image with glass and exposures so it looked as if his dead cousin was in the photo with him. It doesn't look like, if you Google this to see what it looks like, I'll put it on the Instagram, but it doesn't look like an exact portrait. It looks like some sort of ethereal ghost with your loved one's face is on it. So it does look, it looks pretty good because that's sort of what we think of ghosts as. So it does look pretty effective. And of course, in the, you know, in the 1800s, people were like, aha, this is totally legitimate. And of course, a business was born. People wanted photos with their deceased loved ones and he was making it happen. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, she was one of his clients, and there's a photo of her with Abe standing behind her, which kind of just breaks my heart. It was definitely a scam, and it was, but it was sold as genuine. Mumler was later arrested and tried for the scam. He was acquitted, but eventually he stopped doing the photos. Thank goodness. One fun fact, P.T. Barnum of uh, the Sideshow fame, he testified against this guy, Mumler, and said that he was exploiting people's grief, which is absolutely true. But I have to say, if P.T. Barnum thinks that your scam has gone too far, you should probably reevaluate your life. Um, because he was happy to take people's money at any, you know, and sew creatures together. And, exp- you know, he did a lot of things. Um, this was all tied with the spiritualism craze. I cannot overstate how big it was. Mary Todd Lincoln, the wife of the president, she attended seances and Lincoln even conducted one in the White House when he asked the spirits to help guide him to lead the nation. I mean, can you imagine that happening today? There would be a 10-year investigation into it. It would be wall-to-wall coverage every single day. People would never let this go. But at the time, it seemed sort of reasonable. And I would probably guess that not that many people knew about it. So not only did they use cameras to get a nice ghost portrait, but these um, cameras were also used in seances or magic tricks. A ghostly image would be captured on film to prove that ghosts did in fact walk among us. And people who absolutely should have known better were tricked. I'm talking about Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh yes, the author of Sherlock Holmes, a very, very smart man, completely fell for this crap. He defended that Mumler guy, and he said it was all a conspiracy to defame him, which is nonsense. But, you know, smart people do stupid things all the time, and this is one really great example. So as technology has progressed, the more people insist that it, it is able to prove the existence of ghosts. When digital photography was huge, orbs often appeared in photos. Um, I don't know if you watched The Sixth Sense, but you can sort of see in the photos that there's like a weird little like scratch or like you can see that there's some sort of light or something. And that happens a lot in digital photography where you see a light um, reflecting off of something. That's usually dust. It's usually dust or pollen. Of course, people are like, no, it's a ghost. Okay. Now we have video and voice recorders, which um, those ghost hunters on the Travel Channel use to try and capture a ghost on film. There are even ghost apps, which will place a ghost in any picture. 
And there are also apps in which you can supposedly detect a ghost. I remember I went to the Winchester Mystery House. Uh, it was so fun. Highly, highly recommend. Even if you aren't into ghost stuff, because the architecture is so amazing and it's such a massive house. And you really, it's really a window into the time period. And I would go 10 times more. I really, really enjoyed it because you hear about the history of all this, um, of the woman and how she became her own architect and she put in all these like newfangled things like showers and um, easy riser stairs. And like, it, it was really cool. Anyway, while I was going through it, our guide, he said that someone came, people come through apparently all the time with ghost apps to see if they can sense a ghost. And apparently there's like one room that they can always sense a ghost. They even got a name. I think his name was like Peter or something. <laughs> and multiple people had gotten the same thing. So I don't know if it was like a, a problem with the app or what. I don't know. It's funny. Anyway, my point is the more technology we get, the more we try to use it to catch a ghost. You're either using a old fashioned camera or you're using your phone or all these different things. <laughs> Going to catch a ghost one of these days, right? Let's go back to the Japanese professor. He had just lost two of his most talented psychics, and he learned absolutely nothing. He just kept going with the experiments, and um, he eventually found another psychic named Sadako. Doesn't that sound familiar? It certainly should, because that is the name of the monster girl in um, the Japanese film. Just like the girl in the ring in the Japanese version. I honestly think that this woman... The real lady, I think she might have had mental health issues because um, the doctor thought that she was possessed by two different spirits, one being a gremlin and the other being a Buddhist priest. So we would probably know that better as maybe like an angel and a devil. And when I now when I say she had mental health issues, I'm not saying that I think she had multiple personalities. I think it was more likely that she had some sort of trauma and pretending to be these different personalities released some of her issues, or perhaps they empowered her in a way that she wasn't getting as her own person. So, for example, the goblin personality seemed to come out with Sadako's knowledge, and it would act on her behalf. To me, that says that she didn't feel comfortable yelling at the professor herself, so she invented a character to do it for her. And it's not the, <laughs> it's not the worst thing in the world, because I think this professor was just not a good good man. Ugh. Um, the idea of possessing two different personalities is later explored in the Ring novel series where Sadako is actually a twin and like the good one is let out and the bad one is locked up and it's really messed up. <laughs> anyway, Sadako, the real lady, she apparently did not care for the professor. She found these experiments to be quite taxing emotionally, so she quit after a year. And I applaud her. The more I read about this guy, the more I think the professor was an emotionally abusive jerk. Um, I think it's worth noting that three out of the maybe ten women the professor worked with during this time became deeply disturbed. Now, I'm not saying that he did anything to them. We have no way of knowing that, but something something's not right if this keeps happening i don't know i just think the fact that sadako had a character that would come out and fight the professor shows that she desperately wanted to push back against him and felt like she couldn't 
Um, and I'd love to know what he did because I'm just imagining her in a white room guessing at what's underneath a plastic cup. I mean, obviously it wasn't that benign. Maybe he was just putting so much pressure on her to be right and she couldn't deal with it. I don't know who could. Um, Fukurai later publishes a book, and that's when things really went south for him professionally. The book was loudly denounced by his colleagues. The scientific standards were very shoddy, and eventually the university itself denounced the book. Fukurai resigned from his position, and he started his own organization called the Fukurai Institute of Psychology. It does not research psychology, <laughs> They only investigate the paranormal, despite the name, and the Institute is actually still in operation today. Okay, so I think that's where we're going to stop it for this week. Otherwise, we would have a super long episode. Um, it's about twice what we normally do, so I'm going to split it up into two. So that was the story of the real-life inspiration for The Ring, and next week we will cover the folklore aspect and the two main ghosts that are considered inspiration for Sadako slash Samara. So I hope you'll join us then. Thanks. Bye.